politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to defend our liberty to another tremendous week here at CR Podcast. Daniel Horowitz back in the house for Blaze TV. A new week, a new month. Will this be a new frontier for liberty? We already have one month of this year in the can. The tyranny is worse, not better, than it was in 2020. Where do we stand? Well, folks, I hope you had a terrific weekend. I know I had a lot of fun yesterday uh, going sledding with the kids. We haven't had really much of a snowstorm in, in five years, so they had a good time here. We were all uh, iced in today with freezing rain, so... The younger kids aren't at their pods, so I do apologize ahead of time if there's banging in the background, and I do apologize for Friday's show. I know there were problems with the audio, trying to get that fixed, Um, but again, as always, you could access this show at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and if all else fails and they start censoring us, at The Blaze. And I do want to say before we start, I am working with our team on getting up a website where we could communicate, have a forum on the website, and divide ourselves up into different state teams, Liberty Strike Force teams, where you know we'll be up on blockchain or whatever, our own independent place where we won't be beholden to any form of social media. But until then, please continue to help organize at our Minutemen page, Minutemen Speak Easy on Facebook. Um, Hurwitz Citizen Sanctuary is the public page. And of course, until I get kicked off, I am on Twitter at Arm Conservative. Now, folks, I was out for most of the weekend really tuning things out, so I'm still catching up on things. But there is one thing I do know about, and that's shortly after we did the show on Friday. CDC, if you haven't realized, is a fourth branch of government. It's in the Constitution. So there's the judiciary, there's the legislative branch, there's the executive branch, and then then there's the CDC that could just do what it wants. And they created a new statute. Friday afternoon, they dropped the new statute. They criminalized the breathing of a human being without a Chinese diaper on their face, the most sensitive parts of their body. They criminalized that they made it a federal crime to breathe in any mode of transportation. And that includes ride shares and cabs that don't even go interstate. Now, not that the federal government has the right to do this or other things just because it crosses a state line, and that's a whole other discussion with the bastardization of the Commerce Clause, but this applies even within the state. So it wasn't just a matter of pushing the mask mandate on federal lands. It's a matter of federalizing it even just on buses and cabs within the states. Here we have a virus where it is incontrovertibly clear that the mask doesn't work and hasn't worked. A third of the people already had it, over 100 million people easily. Then tons of people are being vaccinated now. It's over. There's nothing more to do. There's nothing you can do to stop the remainder of the transmission anyway. And yet still, what is this? 72 hours in, 
To my knowledge, there is not a single lawsuit. I don't understand it. There's not a single lawsuit. Goes into effect at midnight tonight. And there is no lawsuit. Again, we become so desensitized to what is going on, we call it a mask mandate, as if that's something normal. I don't think any of us a year ago, much less our founders, could have conjured up a, a more, more of a nightmare scenario than government mandating on your nose and mouth that you cannot enjoy freedom, you cannot walk out and about, you can't do anything in life without suffocating your nose and mouth. None of us could have thought of that. What are we going to do about it? What do you do when your federal government turns despotic? Well, part of the problem is 90% of the state governments turn despotic too. See, part of the reason, I, I know some good attorneys general in the country that could sue. The problem is their governors created a mass mandate at a state level. Now, obviously, they have a legal case at a federal level, but it's still kind of politically weird if they do it. So you have to find one of the few that haven't. So, folks, what I've been doing is I've been tweeting at the South Dakota um, Attorney General, the Nebraska Attorney General, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Florida, just to mention a few. We need to start tweeting at them. And get them to file a lawsuit. The answer to what is going on is an all of the above approach. We need to do everything to preserve liberty. We're going to have a special guest today. A mom and pop shop restaurant owner that's being threatened to be shut down because she is not enforcing anti-human rights violations on our customers, mandating that they come in with a mask when they're, they're going to take it off three seconds later to eat anyway. Pennsylvania, we're going to have Kimberly on. But, but I just want to discuss, and I'm going to have an article out today. I have a video out on Rumble. You could follow our Rumble videos at Horowitz Citizen Sanctuary. You could also follow me on Gab at Daniel underscore Horowitz. But I want to discuss today a little bit about interposition and nullification and what that means. You take a look at what, what's going on in Denmark and Netherlands, and you see like hundreds of thousands of people with, with torches, the old-fashioned way, pitchforks and torches. And I'm thinking, how sad it is that in Europe, the birthplace of monarchs, you actually have more of a liberty spirit where at least if they're rioting, they're rioting over liberty, whereas in America, the riots are over crap. Where, where are the people? Too many people ask me, like, Daniel, is this legal? Is this in the Constitution? What, what way could we fight back? So you basically have the federal government and many state governments rape the people, violate human rights, much less American constitutional rights over and over and over again. They violate the social compact, the entire premise of governance. In other words, what government is there for to protect our security from bad guys um, at a local level, crime at a national level, the border, they let them in. They let them out of jail. Then they turn around and lock up business owners, mask our faces. 
You cannot possibly think of a more despotic, totalitarian, gross violation of the social compact than, than what we're confronted with today. So the answer is there is no blueprint to dealing with that. You, you, you fight back against it in any way and always that you have available. I think that's what people are missing. The Constitution's over. Now, we're not saying that we're going to turn despotic because they're doing it or they're, you know, burning down private shops. So we're going to burn down private shops. No. But what we are saying is we have the right to evacuate from the tyranny in any way we see fit. Like I say all the time, if someone kidnaps you and throws you in a room, you don't respond, at least when you get out, by randomly kidnapping other innocent people just because... But what you do respond is, if you feel you need to break a window to get out and release yourself from a situation that you did not place yourself in, and it's not your fault, you have the right to do that. So we don't need to just find a way of, look, I'm all for the Convention of the States. I'm actually going to speak at their webinar on Wednesday night. You could sign up for COS webinar. Just Google it. And I'm all for that, but we don't have to wait till we get 34 and 38 states to somehow amend the Constitution when they're the ones who amended it. You just say no. It's a mixture of the people protesting, refusing, non-compliance, but it's most effective when you interpose. You have the local and state governments where you can get them to stand as an interposition between the people and the other states or federal government that are infringing upon the liberty. We should have what we have in Denmark. But you know what? I don't need people even marching. I'll take it doing it more privately with the sheriffs, with the state legislatures. This is what needs to happen. People are very confused about the debate over nullification and 1798 and what happened there. What was Madison's view? He seemed to walk it back later in life. And the answer is very simple. Everyone supports nullification and no one supports nullification. What I mean by it is this. When you believe the federal government is truly violating the Constitution, everyone agrees that you have to do everything you can to push back. When they're not, then you believe you don't. And the disagreement was always, well... Do you believe what the federal government was doing is wrong? So basically, the way to look at it is like this. I don't really believe in nullification. In other words, is there a constitutional prescription for, you know, vetoing what the federal government does? No. Just like I always say there's no veto of the judicial. The judiciary doesn't veto something that the other branches do. It's that. Marshall said, if the other branches are doing something unconstitutional, you as a separate branch cannot go along with that. And likewise, if the judiciary branch is calling for something unconstitutional, certainly the other branches have an obligation not to listen. And likewise, between the local, state, and federal levels of government and the respective three branches, it's the same obligation. It's the same obligation. And that's the thing. There is no mechanism of, hey, you know, now it goes to the states. The states could nullify. It's more of just a reality that if the federal government has become despotic, you don't just sit there and take it. Meaning, 
let's say the federal government uses its lawful power to make a treaty or a deal with Iran. They have the right and the power to do that. It might be really bad policy. It might be dangerous policy. But they do have that power. So there's no nullification for a state to do. But let's say they say everyone has to be raped. Everyone has to have their mouth covered. Okay? So there's no nullification either in the sense that there's a process for nullifying. It's just understanding is that we have separate layers of government and the natural reaction would be that they would interpose and they just wouldn't listen to it and they shouldn't listen to it. This is what they talk about all the time. A lot of people point out the fact that Madison in 1830, at the end of his life, he lived to see the budding of the Civil War and the, and the nullification um, crisis with South Carolina early on when John C. Calhoun was pushing it in the Senate. And Madison was like, look, you know, this is not what I pushed with the Virginia Resolution 1798. And everyone takes that as a, as a proof that, oh, so he opposed nullification. But the answer is, Madison really didn't like where the South was headed. He didn't agree with it. He agreed with the federal government. So he didn't, I mean, it was all political. So he didn't like interposing. But in 1798, when they had the Sedition Act, which really violated the First Amendment, like, yeah, we got to push back against this. And he did. He wrote the Virginia Resolution and Jefferson wrote the Kentucky Resolution. Folks, do you know who was the lead of um, the leader in opposing John C. Calhoun? The famous debate in the Senate in in uh, 1832. Daniel Webster, right? You would say certainly he opposed um, nullification, right? Well, I got news for you. I got news for you. In 1814, during the War of 1812. A lot of people don't know this. Do you know who supported nullification? Daniel Webster. <laughs> Quote, the operation of measures thus unconstitutional and illegal ought to be prevented by a resort to other measures which are both constitutional and legal. It will be the solemn duty of the state governments to protect their own authority over their own militia and to interpose between their citizens and arbitrary power. These are among the objects for which the state governments exist and their highest obligations bind them to the preservation of their own rights and the liberties of their people. He opposed then, he gave a famous speech against the draft. They were drafting people into the federal army for the War of 1812. He didn't agree with it. He opposed the whole effort that got us into the war. He was on the other side. So he felt what the federal government was doing was tyrannical. So all of a sudden, he became a big proponent of nullification. In the 1830s, he, he opposed slavery. He opposed the South. He was from the North. He agreed with the federal government. So he opposed what they were doing. Do you get a pattern here? Of course, when the federal government is doing what is in accordance with their power, the supremacy clause kicks in. And you have to abide by it if you're a state. But of course, now, now there's some areas that were gray. It was a disagreement. So it fell along those lines. But everyone agrees that if something is patently unconstitutional and it's part of a train 
of usurpations that are endless and they govern every aspect of your most personal life. The individual, the county, the state, and anyone who has any sort of megaphone or power has the obligation to stand up. This was most clearly enunciated by Hamilton, the biggest original advocate of a strong federal government. He said this several times. Where is this? It was Hamilton, I believe, in Federalist 26. The state legislatures, who will always be not only vigilant but suspicious and jealous guardians of the rights of the citizens against encroachments from, from the federal government, will constantly have their attention awake to the conduct of the national rulers and will be ready enough, if anything improper appears, to sound the alarm to the people and not only be the voice, he wrote in capitals, but, if necessary, the arm of their discontent. Let me read further. This was Federalist... Um, darn, and I'm forgetting here, was it 38? I apologize. It's in the 30s. If a number of political societies enter into a larger, larger political society, meaning the Feds, the laws which the latter may enact, pursuant to the powers entrusted to it by its constitution, must necessarily be supreme over those societies and the individuals of whom they are composed. It would otherwise be a mere treaty dependent on the good faith of the parties and not a government, which is only another word for political power and supremacy. Right? So, I mean, they believe in the supremacy clause. It's not optional. Of course, you have to abide by what the federal government does. But look at this. This is Hamilton. You know, we debate over what Madison held. Let's talk about Hamilton. This is the next line. But it will not follow from this doctrine that acts of the large society, which are not pursuant, and he writes that in, in italics, not pursuant to his constitutional powers, but which are invasions of the residuary authorities of the smaller societies will become the supreme law of the land. These will be merely acts of usurpation and will deserve to be treated as such. Hence, we perceive that the clause, which declares the supremacy of the laws of the Union, like the one we have just before considered, only declares a truth which flows immediately and necessarily from the institution of the federal government. It will not, I presume, have escaped observation that it expressly confines this supremacy to laws made pursuant to the Constitution, which I mentioned merely as an instance of caution in the Convention since that limitation would have been under would have to be understood though it had not been expressed so it, it says right blatantly that it's pursuant to the constitution but hamilton said even if it didn't say that it's obvious if if the federal government says you know we're going to act despotic well we all say to each other thank god we have states thank god we don't have one layer and we have the ability to fight back you see what I'm saying? It's not that there's an institution in the Constitution called nullification. It's obvious. It's natural law. So the answer is no, there's no such thing as nullification. If there's something you don't like that the federal government is doing. But if it is clearly unconstitutional and despotic and totalitarian, you got to pick your battles. And the war times, like, you know, Madison felt later in life in, 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 1930, in 1830, it wasn't worth dissolving the Union over that. 
But in 1798, he sure was alarmed. (laughs) It all depends on what bothers you. So I just wanted to clear that up. And what does it look like? Let's read a little bit from the Kentucky Resolution. Resolved that the several states composing the United States of America are not united on the principles of unlimited submission to their general government. But that by compact, under the style and title of the Constitution of the United States and of amendments thereto, they constitute a general government for special purposes delegated to that government certain definitive powers reserving each state to itself the residuary mass of right to their own self-government. And that whensoever the general government assumes undelegated powers, its acts are unauthoritative, void, and of no force. That to this compact, each state accedes, acceded as a state and is an integral party, its co-states forming as to itself the other party. That the government created by this compact was not made the exclusive or final judge of the extent of the powers delegated to itself, since that would have made its discretion and not the Constitution the measure of its powers. But that, as in all other cases of compact among parties having no common judge, each party has an equal right to judge of itself as well of infractions as of the mode and measures of redress. And I say this all the time with judicial supremacism. Well, Daniel, so is the legislature supreme? No one is. The Constitution is. Well, what if we disagree over the Constitution? Or they just blatantly say, screw the Constitution. It's incumbent upon everyone, each of the three branches, each of the three layers of government, state, local, and federal, and the people to all stand up and say, this is not right. It's not like, oh, we need to um, get a new election or a new president to change it. No, it's got to stop now, and we're going to do everything we can. And again, it's a mixture of the people working with... um, Working with... Uh, whatever governments and levers of power work. Let me go back to Madison, Federalist 46. So this was 10 years before the fight over the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions and the Sedition Act. Again, you're going to see that this was before... Madison is not talking about nullification because this was before they even adopted the Constitution. He's talking about just a natural consequence of federal usurpation and this is what he was telling the people that were suspicious of the federal government he was like look you still have the states don't worry if they if they become problematic you just say no it's not it's not a nullification process it's not a affirmative tangible thing it's more of a lack of anything it's more of just it naturally flows you're just not going to listen if the fourth reich comes to power you're not going to say like, oh, well, geez, the supremacy clause. I don't know what to do. Federalist 46. I mean not by these reflections to insinuate that the new federal government will not embrace a more enlarged plan of policy than the existing government may have pursued, much less that its views will be as confined as those of state legislatures, but only that it will partake sufficiently of the spirit of both to be dis- um disinclined to invade the rights of the individual states or the prerogatives of their governments. In other words, he's saying, look, I understand the danger is there, but they're not going to really do much because there's going to be a check on their power. The motives on the part of the state governments to augment their prerogatives by 
defecations from the federal government will be overruled by no reciprocal predispositions in the members. Warrid admitted, however, that the federal government may feel an equal disposition with the state governments to extend its power beyond the due limits. The latter, meaning the states, would still have the advantage in the means of defeating such encroachments. If an act of a particular state, though, unfriendly to the national government, be generally popular in that state and should not too grossly violate the oaths of the state officers, it is executed immediately and, of course, by means on the spot and depending on the state alone. The opposition of the federal government or their interposition of federal officers would but inflame the zeal of all parties on the side of the state and the evil could not be prevented or repaired, if at all, without the employment of means which must always be resorted to with reluctance and difficulty. So what he's talking about is this. He's saying Madison was trying to explain to uh, the anti-federalists that he was actually more concerned about state usurpations. He's like, look, they're right on the people. They influence your day-to-day life. It's just the opposite. You know, if they act despotic, It'll be hard for the feds to reverse that because if the feds get involved, the people will rally around their local government, you know, and and they'll, you know, double down with more zeal. So he's like, I'm not worried about, don't worry about the federal government. I'm not anything worried about more state tyranny. But the notion that if the feds would be tyrannical, that states would somehow go along with it, he laughed at that. He's like, it's obvious, it's natural. Like, uh, the sheriff, the county, the state, the governor, like, Hey, buddy, we're, we're, we're just not doing that here. So let me just read it inside. On the other hand, should an unwarrantable measure of the federal government be unpopular in particular states, which would seldom fail to be the case, or even a warrantable measure be so, which may sometimes be the case, the means of opposition to it are powerful and at hand. The disquietude of the people, their repugnance and perhaps refusal to cooperate with the officers of the union, the frowns of the executive magistracy of the state, meaning the governor, the embarrassments created by the legislative devices, meaning the state legislature, which would often be added on such occasions, would oppose in any state. Difficulties not to be despised would form in a large state very serious impediments. And where the sentiments of several adjoining states happening to be in unison would present obstructions, which the federal government would hardly be willing to encounter. But ambitious encroachments of the federal government on the authority of the state governments would not excite the opposition of a single state or of a few states only. They would be signals of general alarm. Every government would espouse the common cause. A correspondence would be open. Plans of resistance would be concerted. One spirit would animate and conduct the whole. The same combinations, in short, would result from an apprehension of the federal, as was produced by the dread of a foreign yoke and unless the projected innovations should be voluntarily renounced, the same appeal to a trial of force would be made in the one case as was made in the other. In other words, he was saying it's just like Great Britain, a far-off government tyranny. You know, the colonies got together and fought it. It's the same thing with Washington if they did that. The state governments, they would alarm, they would inform. It's a mixture of the people saying no and organizing locally. So this was... This was predetermined, predestined by Madison even before 1798. That's just a reality. It's like, I'm sick of hearing this. Like, government will, like, say, everyone has to get a sex change operation. Daniel, how do we fight it? Uh, um, What's the constitutional... What do you mean? You fight it. 
You 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 got to say no, and you use whatever power you have to to throw sand in the gears. You, this is all hands on deck. They don't get to violate the Constitution a hundred times and then look as look at us and say the supremacy clause. You know that's just maybe something we don't like, but something that's unconstitutional. He makes up a criminal statute governing the most sensitive parts of our lives. That cannot stand. That must not stand. Our founders could never have imagined the federal government saying, there's a virus and indefinitely you can't open your business. You must make patrons wear a mask. And somehow the states would go along with it. Or if half of them would, the other half wouldn't. But then again, our founders never envisioned America having two factions where unlike in 1798, where you had the Republicans and the Federalists, where each party represented a constituency, where we'd have nowadays where both parties become an oligarch and we have no representation. That really is where our problem is, but we got to start in the areas where we have that majority. Got a state of Idaho, where Republicans have super-duper majorities. The House seems to be pushing to go up against the rhino governor, but, you know... The Senate is, is, is very problematic there, despite their three-to-one majority. You have a lieutenant governor leading the fight against the governor there. Hopefully, uh, she'll run for um, in a primary, and I encourage her to do so. She certainly has my support. This is what needs to happen. Now, folks, when it comes to federal tyranny, it's even worse if it's augmented by state tyranny. Now, we know there's a lot of states where the governors are just as bad, if not worse, than what the federal government is doing. It obviously originated in the states this time. We have a state like Pennsylvania, where Governor Tom Wolf is literally shredding every single clause of the Bill of Rights, shutting down businesses, the mask mandates, um, just the child abuse, everything we're seeing. But there are strong majorities that Republicans have in the state legislature. Now, they are finally starting to push things like a constitutional amendment is probably going to be on the ballot in late May, but we need relief now. And as I mentioned before, the way that relief begins is by people saying no. The difference between humans and animals is that humans could actually say no. And this is where it needs to start. And part of why this has been so successful, this usurpation has been so enmeshed, ingrained in society, is because government has threatened and panicked everyone and made everyone suspicious of each other. So each person turns to the next and is like, well, look, I, I want to earn a, earn a buck, so I want to keep my business open, so I'll just you know, enforce the tyranny on everyone else so I could earn a buck. And then, you know... One after another, it's the opposite of interposition where the people organize to fight against the government. It's the government organizes the people to basically subjugate themselves. One person who is fighting back almost single-handedly is Kimberly Wagand. She has a terrific establishment if you're in the Brentwood, Pennsylvania area, south of Pittsburgh, cracked egg. It's a, a breakfast uh, restaurant, a mom-and-pop shop that unlike Amazon and Walmart that have unlimited connections to government to earn a buck off of government regulations, um, 
you know, she has filed for Chapter 11. She has kept her business open during the shutdowns. She's had the government come after her, the health department. She's now in court. And a judge directly asked her, you know, are you going to make your customers wear a mask? And she said, absolutely not. I'm not going to violate human rights. I'm not going to violate the Constitution. I can't require customers to do that. In fact, actually, as I've said before, um, had Kimberly a year ago, let's say 12 months ago, she would have said, you know, anyone who walks in here has to cover their mouth and nose. She would be hit up with OSHA and ADA lawsuits. And now somehow the government could just tell her to break the law. No way. Well, with us today is none other than Kimberly herself to tell us her great story. Kimberly, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much, Daniel, for having me. I think what we're doing right now in Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh, the Pennsylvania being the Keystone State, is pretty huge, fighting back the tyranny of a tyrannical government. Um, at the cracked egg, we don't follow any edicts of them, and we walk as free people. Um, when we started this pandemic in March, when we were asked to close for those two weeks to flatten the curve, uh, we did our part because we didn't know what it was. Uh, I laid off staff, um, me and my son. We worked the business alone found out one of my staff members, uh, a man who has children, wasn't uh, able to get the unemployment because he only started for me uh, in January on the books. So we brought him back. So that's how it all started. And we did. We followed all of the mandates set by the governor. We did the social distancing. We did the... Uh, outdoor dining only, takeout only. Then we did the limited capacity. But what we never did was require masks for our staff or our guests. It's not my place to know why they're not wearing a mask. Um, and my stance on this has been that the government is relying on the businesses to do what they cannot, and that is to require masks. And isn't it just, just I, I want to get to the broader picture too, but now that you're talking about the mask aspect, isn't it kind of funny how a restaurant of all places, you're obviously going to eat, okay? So this charade of walking in there with the mask and then taking it off is ridiculous because if you believed in somehow, some way that it's um, efficacious, which of course it's not, well, you're taking it off anyway. Um, so I mean... Like, isn't that true? You would just come in for 30 seconds, have your order, and then, I mean, it doesn't get in, into your mouth magically, right? Right. It's absurd. Actually, it's absurd. So um, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, during our evidentiary hearing um, this past Wednesday through Friday um, for an emergency injunction, I guess we should get back to that. Um, but a Let's go back to the Dr. Brinks, the uh, epidemiologist for the county, uh, said that it is a uh, risk that uh, people take their masks off to eat. And it's a compromise by the county for restaurants to have indoor dining. 
Now, you'll get her exact words when the court transcripts come out, but that's about the gist of it. You know, so um, in the summer, probably around June, uh, the health department started calling me because they were receiving complaints that uh, we don't wear masks and we don't require them. Uh, so then, because I didn't tell them what they wanted to hear, they came out. Then I still wouldn't comply to them and require masks. So then they came. Well, wait, could you just describe what that looks like for our listeners, what that means when the health department comes out? Do the sheriff's deputies come out or it's just kind of plain clothes, you know, uh, oh. workers at, at the Department of Health? Yeah, it's just a health inspector. At first, one came out and um, he didn't inspect. He just wanted to encourage me, bully me, intimidate me by telling me they will close me down or they will uh, issue me fines if I do not require masks. I said, how much are the fines? He didn't know. So that's, I guess, when they brought, um, he brought a trainee with him, and then they brought the supervisor in August. So this has been going on like June, July, nothing, okay? Now they bring in the supervisor. So the first day they came in, it was a Wednesday, I believe. And um, I wasn't there that day. But they spent three hours. And then they uh, did an extensive uh, inspection, you know, your food, uh, safety, things like that. And what I believe they were looking for is major food violations to shut us down, okay? Then they came back on a Friday when I was there. And um, they approached me with their masks on and me with no mask. And the supervisor wanted to explain to me how masks work. You know, my mask protects you, your mask protects me. I told her, why are you so close to me then? It's hypocrisy is what it is. They stand right next to you. Um, right? And also my kitchen staff, you know, in the kitchen, it's especially in the summer, it's brutally hot. Um, they agreed. To that, my- that would violate OSHA standards. That would violate OSHA standards to have you could be thrown in. in, in, in normally you would be thrown in jail for making your employees uh, work that way. Right. Plus they would die back there. I worked back in the kitchen. I started cooking. uh in March, you know, um, when I laid off my staff. Um, so if I'm not going to wear one, I'm not going to ask my staff to wear one. Uh, but they did, the health department did agree with me that my kitchen staff did not need to wear a mask. But as soon as they went into the dining area, they needed to have one on. Well, where's the eminent danger of a virus? If you don't need one on in the kitchen, but you need one on in the dining room, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It's absurd. Or if you're eating and chomping <laughs> without it, I mean, <laughs> right. the, the whole thing is just, it's its mentally ill. It's, you, you know, if you make someone believe absurdities, you can make them commit atrocities, and that's where we are now. So you told them no. You said you're not doing this. Right. Um, have they threatened you with jail time? Oh, oh yes. 
Do you know who Rachel Levine is? Oh, I think everyone does by now. I mean, his name, whatever his his real right, name is. Right. Yeah. So we'll just refer to this person as Levine. I received a nice letter. Um, I was threatened with jail time and fines for every day I operate uh, without doing the mandates. Because see, what I did was the governor shut down Pennsylvania three weeks before Christmas, right? Well, guess what? I said, no. I gave him the big F you too. Can I say that? But anyhow, I said no, and I stayed open. And um, that's when I received the uh, letter from Levine. So yes, I've been threatened jail time and fines. I'll go to jail, and I'll get out, and I'll open back up again. I will never stand on to the tyrannical government. And at this point right now, businesses that follow the edicts of the uh, tyrannical government that are complying with these masks, it is their fault right now that this is going on 10 and a half months. Who are they to tell people to wear a mask? Do they have, are they in charge of making health decisions for people? It's insanity. It, I it drives me nuts how, how we have become desensitized to it. I don't even like calling it a mask mandate because that it sounds like, you know, like a typical policy. And this is anything but typical to what, what, what they are basically doing is criminalizing the breathing, not through a Chinese diaper. And that is utterly insane. Again, it violates um, God's natural law. Our lungs weren't designed that way. And even if even if you believe government could do that, which certainly it can, 10 months later, it clearly doesn't work by their own admission that it's still spreading everywhere. So this is the thing. You're, you're bringing up a point that I don't think I have focused on on this show enough. I focus a lot on red states and red counties that certainly there we should be able to push back and, you know, with the county governments and the sheriff and the state legislature – but you're saying a bigger point, even in the blue counties and everywhere, and even in the red ones, we're ultimately going to need this. Ultimately, it's the businesses and, and, and the people are just running so scared. So most people in your position are like, thank you, government. I'm so happy just to be opened in any way. Yes, yes, let me do this. And, 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 you just, and each person enforces the tyranny on each other. And this doesn't go away. No. And you know what I find odd? is that there are business owners that are grown men, that are veterans, and yet they comply to the edicts of a tyrannical government. It, I, I know three other restaurants in my area, okay, all owned by women that follow none of the mandates, that have the courage to stand up. Now, I'm on Bronzeville Road. I have um, a garage door, so you can see right through. Uh, Brentwood's like two miles long. It's a small community, a lot of walkers, a lot of snitches, right? So that's why I think they have targeted us because of the constant complaints and snitches. And guess what? Uh, I'll take it. And in the beginning of this, when I was getting a lot of hate from the community, it hurt. Um, I'm in the hospitality industry, so 
by nature, too, I am just a people pleaser. And it really hurt my heart that people would think that I am so horrible that I am spreading disease. I want to kill grandma. It's, it's ridiculous. There are people that have, uh, uh, have PTSD that cannot wear a mask. There are people that have breathing problems. No, um, I did a uh, live with our, uh, one of our expert witnesses during our trial. Children, um, when they go into cardiac, they go into cardiac arrest um, differently than adults. And one of them is by not being able to breathe properly. And so we are masking our children. I had a guest come in. Um, she had a baby with her in a stroller, a high stroller with a breathing tube. I went over to say hello to the baby and I scared her and I apologized to the woman. And the woman said, that's okay. I just picked her up. She was born addicted and she's been in an institution. She has never seen a human face without a mask. And she is scared. This is what we are doing to our children. We are dehumanizing them. We are not see seeing their faces. They're not seeing our faces. They can't see smiles. Nothing. It's sad. It is wrong. It's demonic. And we as a society that is not standing up and fighting back should be ashamed of ourselves. We're Americans. This is not what we do. And you know what? Trump is not our president right now, right? But what Trump did for us, he showed us how to fight. He told us who was the swamp. We know what we need to do. And now is time to stand up and fight back. I can't do it alone. None of us can. But those businesses that comply with this propaganda and put those pictures up on their doors, no mask, no service, they are in their own demise of the American dream, our freedoms, our liberties, 10 and a half months in, and we have the power to stop it, and they choose to stand down. It blows my mind. This is absurd. It's ridiculous. When is it going to stop? It's going to stop when we all stand together and say no more. That's when it'll happen. But no, let's just comply because I'm afraid I'll lose my license. Guess what? I lost my license August 11th. Guess who's still in business? Serving people, me. That's right. Ten and a half months, I'm still there. So they can do what they, they want. My point is, I if businesses want to close, I don't know how many businesses close because of this, because uh, they can't afford to be in business on takeout only, 25%, 50% occupancy. That's their problem. They had the choice. They made their choice. Now, I'm not stopping here, because when we win this case, which we will, because I have faith in God, because this is for God and country, actually. This isn't about me saving my business anymore. That's what it's for. We are going to go after these school districts 
get these masks off our children. And when I asked that of our attorneys, they said, why not? But what we need is that would have to be, I assume, a full-time job for a law firm. So we need the funds to keep them going into this fight. Now, I went off on a rant there. No, but that that's very important because what you're saying is, look, you're a small business. You could play the same game as everyone else. This is not about you trying to earn a living because it's probably easier for you to earn a living just by complying, especially now that Trump is no longer president. So now it's suddenly scientific for all the governors to say you could have dining. So, you know, you could kind of go along with it and, you know, keep your head down. Don't even, you know, you could even not enforce the mask stuff so publicly, but not be so publicly against it. But no, your point is you want to be public because this has got to stop and not just about restaurants, but even more importantly, the children. So you are going through it with these lawsuits. I want you to talk about two things. Number one, where people could help out because this is going to cost to go on offense. And number two, talk about your legal help because I've honestly had trouble finding lawyers willing to take cases like this. Oh my gosh. My attorneys are true American patriots. Let me tell you that. Um, uh, When the health department first shut us down August 11th, and um, so I spent two, three weeks looking for attorneys. The attorney suggested, oh, you can't fight back the Connie. Uh, just, just wear the mask. Just have your staff wear them. I said, no, I won't. So the county wanted me to send them a plan of how I would enforce it before they would allow, you know, uh, give me back my permit, say, and let me reopen. Well, I was never going to do it, so I just defied the order and opened up. Then they uh, sent me an email on September 17th. Now, they served that uh, unlawfully, so it was an emergency injunction on September 17th to shut me down. Ten minutes after opening that email, I received a letter from uh, Judge McVeigh's law clerk that the emergency injunction was on Monday. Now, they gave me one business day to find attorneys, and by the grace of God, I did. And what those attorneys at Lample Law Firm did was at the emergency injunction, they um, asked for it to be moved to state court. Then what what they did was we filed um, a lawsuit against the county in federal court, okay? So then in October, we filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, and then in, so this has been going on September now, since September. And then uh, the county asked the bankruptcy judge to let it go back into uh, state, not state court, uh, the Western PA court of common pleas, okay, for the emergency injunction. He allowed it because we're in a pandemic, right? So uh, at our emergency injunction last, not last Friday, the Friday before, the judge uh, let us have our day in court with our evidentiary hearing that took place last week from Wednesday till Friday. So that's how, um, if that answers your story, how I found them. But we also have co-counsel with the Blackwell firm as well. 
Now, we did uh, put down a respectable retainer. Uh, we have a GoFundMe page. I sell uh, T-shirts and different local products at our restaurant to help fund our legal fees. But uh, they could go onto our website at www.crackedegg. There's no E in that. It's C-R-A-C-K-D-E-G-G.com. They could go on our website to find our GoFundMe link. Yes. Because every, everyone really has a responsibility to help because, again, you're not doing this for, to help your business. You're doing this because someone needs to get an injunction on this. Someone needs to get in you know, federal court. We have not had a categorical ruling yet. Um, they've been very minor, the victories, on a, you know, a little bit of church capacity in here and there. But that this entire thing, at some point, it is unjustifiable, even with all the convoluted logic of last year. Um, by definition, none of this stuff can work. The fact that they're saying it's still spreading, and someone's got to put an end to this because, as you noted, it will not end on its own. We're seeing that. They're openly saying the vaccine is not even ending it. Um, as absurd as it was to say you're going to destroy liberty until there's a vaccine, well, now we have it. And they're saying, well, sorry, we lied. So this has, you know, it's, it's got to go on. Um, before we go, I just want you to explain a little bit the here and now, where things stand what you expect in the coming days, and, and how people could help support you. We should be receiving the judges rolling sometime this week. Um, our attorneys and their, their attorneys had to submit their briefs today by 10 a.m. And uh, the judge says that uh, it's needed. He has a big decision whether to shut down a restaurant or uh, to violate, uh, like, if the Constitution applies, uh, the pandemic, whatever, okay? So he knows that it's important. Um, so he wants to do that. And as for support, I would just say spread the word. Encourage other businesses to stand up and fight back. It's, it's their business. It's the American dream. It's our freedoms and liberties. They can also contribute to our GoFundMe page. Um, because at this point, there's, if wait, I'm not even going to say if, when we win this, this will be epic for the state of Pennsylvania and actually for humanity that we win and the masks that are unconstitutional, that's huge. That's huge. So I think that yeah, if, would, if we don't do it now, yep, it will yeah, never go away. Never. It will never, never go ever. away. And these poor people are so conditioned to, to wear them because they're scared because they watch the media. It's sad. It's sad. It, it, it really is. And we all appreciate you standing up. Um, you know, it, it's always falls on the shoulders of a few people to start, um, you know, the rebellion back for liberty. But we need people like you. We also need people to help. So you can go to crackedegg.com. Um, drop her a note of encouragement as well as a donation. Kimberly, we're going to have you back again. 
when you update us on what's going on. May God be with you. Thanks for standing strong and keep us updated, all right? Thank you so much, Daniel. God bless you for all your doing.